You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steedsellers, a senior writer here at The Post. And I'm joined today by Ukraine's chief prosecutor, Andrei Kostin, who'll be talking to me today about gaining accountability for alleged Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Mr. Kostin, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you and hello, Francis. Hello. Let's start with those stunning numbers we saw right in the introductory video, Mr. Kostin. How many reports are you seeing coming into your office right now? And where are they coming from? Citizen journalists or regular citizens? Uh, we receive information from all over all, all the sources. And of course, uh, the uh, the most uh, uh, the the biggest numbers we receive, of course, uh, from the uh, uh, victims and uh, survivors of uh, alleged uh, war crimes committed by Russian Federation. Actually, as of today, we have registered more than seventy-seven thousand incidents of uh, war crimes, and they also include not only murder, not only um, not only uh, humiliation and rape. They also include the destroying of private property, they include forced deportation, they include forced detention of Ukrainians on occupied territories. They include looting on massive scale on the occupied territories and many other war crimes. I would say that uh, practically there is no any war crime in history that was not and is not committed uh, by Russians on Ukrainian soil. So, Mr. Kostin, you're a lawyer-bag background, familiar with the process of gathering evidence, but what are the peculiar complications of gathering evidence during war? We all know about the fog of war, but what are the challenges you face in, in building this accountability? Uh, first of all, I would like to mention that uh, from the very first day of full-scale invasion, um, all law enforcement agencies, uh, all prosecutors, investigators and courts were operational. And this is a unique situation when the war crimes uh, and the collection of evidences of the war crimes um, were um, conducted practically from the very first day of uh, full-scale invasion. Uh, we are investigating war crimes in course of ongoing aggression. We uh, are not only investigating them, but also we are making Russians accountable for the war crimes committed on Ukrainian soil. We all know and we all see that uh, the historic decision of the International Criminal Court to issue the arrest warrant to incumbent president of Russian Federation, P5 member state, Vladimir Putin and Commissioner I would say commissioner in brackets for uh, children's rights of Russian Federation, Maria Lvova-Bilova. And this is only part of our work, uh, whereas the primary role in uh, investigation and prosecution of war crimes uh, in Ukraine is with Ukrainian investigatory authorities and Ukrainian prosecutors. At the moment, we have 305 people uh, alleged perpetrators who are notified of suspicion. We have 150 indictments already, and we have 30 convictions by Ukrainian courts with regard to Russian war criminals committed war crimes on Ukrainian land. 
And I would say that 99 plus percent of all cases of war crimes committed on Ukrainian against Ukrainians uh, will be prosecuted and tried in Ukraine, whereas the International Criminal Court will definitely play its complementary role where we cannot, for instance, um, touch uh, Vladimir Putin as an incumbent uh, head of state because of his personal immunity on national level. Therefore, this uh, first case brought by the team of Karim Khan to the ICC is an explicitly complementary case with regard to uh, war crimes committed in Ukraine. We also have two big structural cases with regard to crime of aggression and with regard to crime of genocide. And we have a group of prosecutors and investigators together with international experts who help us to prosecute these cases. And uh, we are really appreciating and evaluating uh, the, and valuing, I'm sorry, the uh, assistance of a great number of uh, international experts who help us to build the cases of the crime of aggression and crime of genocide. And we also are looking for the case on the crimes against, on the crimes against humanity which could be brought before the ICC and before the national investigative authorities. In addition to our national efforts, in addition to the investigations conducted by the International Criminal Court and uh, team of Prosecutor Khan, uh, we also uh, are um, uh, in coordination with the national authorities of 20 countries who opened investigations on alleged war crimes committed by Russians on Ukrainian land. And as a fourth element, I mentioned already three layers of criminal responsibility and criminal accountability of the aggressor state. As a fourth layer is, of course, a, a creation of special international special tribunal on the crime of aggression. So these four layers of criminal responsibility create full web of accountability on criminal level for Russia and its perpetrators. So let me ask you about another whole facet in all of this, and this is the international mechanism for reparations. I understand that's something you discussed with uh, US leaders when you were last in the US, I think in February, including Samantha Power at USAID. How have those talks progressed? And secondly, how are you preparing Ukrainian citizens to make claims in such a system? You know, Thank you for the question. You mentioned the, the other uh, element of our web of accountability, which is a civil, uh, if, if we can say like this, civil responsibility of the aggressor state for all harm and damage caused by aggression to Ukrainians and to Ukraine. Um, our primary role is, of course, to uh, ensure that uh, this harm and damage would be compensated. And uh, the most uh, fair compensation should be by the assets of the perpetrator. Would it be Russia as a state or would it be Russian uh, um, physical persons or legal entities who are helping the Russian state uh, uh, in, uh, in, uh, the, in their war of aggression? Uh, it's important for Ukrainians to receive this uh, compensation. I would say that we have uh, a good dynamics uh, from uh, my last visit uh, to DC 
And first of all, this is a decision on the creation of the register of damages, which will be an international one and which will be based in The Hague. Um, uh, we, have a, we have already a confirmation from the, from the government of the Kingdom of Netherlands. And the other very important, um, uh, very important achievement is that uh, we are in a very positive step of negotiations between Ukraine and the Council of Europe, which uh, is ready to, um, to sign with us uh, the uh, agreement uh, and which will uh, help us to organize this register of damages. What we have on the case of reparations, we have already uh, a lot of uh, property of Russian Federation, I mean sovereign funds, and private property of Russians, uh, which are already identified and are already frozen by many states, including the US. And actually, I'm very grateful for the uh, US uh, Klepta Capture Task Force of the DOJ, and uh, to my um, to my uh, uh, colleague and and friend, Attorney General Mary Garland, uh, who are very active and who prepared the first case of confiscation of Russian assets, which was declared in in um, on third of uh, February this year, and Ukrainian government is uh, already uh, expecting uh, the transfer of this uh, money. And we know that uh, the other cases uh, are ongoing. So we have frozen assets, I mean, our partners, and some of these assets are, are already uh, confiscated and will be used in order to compensate damage to Ukrainians and to Ukraine. My first uh, message to everyone is that uh, the... I'm sorry. <clears throat> <laughs> no problem. That, yes, that the... All victims and survivors should receive this compensation. People, Costin, the families oh. of those who were killed, right. the people who were wounded, who lost their health, right. who lost their property, they should right. receive money <clears throat> from the Russian assets. Mr. Kostin, I want to go back to this question of the arrest warrant uh, for <clears throat> Vladimir Putin, which I think was issued by the ICC three weeks ago. What is your message to countries that are stalling in saying whether they would comply with that warrant and hand Vladimir Putin over were he to enter their borders, cross their borders? Um, I think that everyone in the civilized world should respect justice and law. The arrest warrant to Putin shows to everyone that no one could be above the law. And if we all agree on this, then all the states who are the members of the Rome Statute should execute this arrest warrant. If they intentionally don't want to do it, it shows that they are not fair and they are not honest and that for them probably justice is just a word which means nothing and these people should these politicians should come to ukraine should meet ukrainians who lost their 
lives, I mean the relatives of those who lost their lives in course of this war of aggression. They could meet families who lost their children and to tell them that they don't believe in law, that justice for them means nothing. I hardly believe that they are too courageous to do it because they understand that law is above all. And I would also address these politicians who would like to disobey arrest warrant of the ICC, that in case that they, as politicians, would be in center of any criminal proceedings, they would ask and they would insist on law and justice to be served for them. And they don't need to forget about that law and justice should be equal for everyone. Right. And this is, uh, this is inhuman, I think, with regard to Ukrainians to say that they will disobey arrest warrant of the ICC because it's about Putin. I should say that they need to obey this arrest warrant. And we are grateful for all national authorities who already announced that in case Putin will appear on their territory, they would arrest him. And this is a good signal for everyone. Mr. Carson, let me ask you another question about this complicated international scene. And that is that Russia has assumed presidency of the UN Security Council. How does that complicate your efforts to achieve accountability in these alleged war crimes? Um, you know, uh, this mostly relates to the issue of creation of the special ad hoc uh, international tribunal for the crime of aggression. We all understand that even in previous months, when Russia was not uh, a presidency in the Security Council of UN, we have no chance to pass the resolution of Security Council, which could uh, uh, transfer this uh, case to the ICC. We all understood that Russia would block as a permanent member of Security Council such resolution. Maybe it's a question not for us, but maybe it's a question for the United Nations in order to think about the nature of the United Nations as, a, as an international organization which should preserve peace and order on the worldwide level. And if Security Council cannot fulfill this task, we need to create a special mechanism in order to make Russia accountable for the leadership crime, the crime of aggression. I would say as a lawyer, you know, if Putin uh, at the moment is suspect in international war crime, committed in course of war of aggression, it means de facto that he is suspect in the crime of aggression. Because if aggression would not occur, he would not have any possibility to commit war crime, uh, deportation of Ukrainian children and abduction of Ukrainian children. So this means that we need to create international mechanism, even if Russia is temporarily the uh, chair in the, the Security Council. For many Ukrainians, uh, this rule 
is a matter of, you know, it's a matter of real unfairness in the international legal system. How can the country which started war of aggression breaching the backgrounds of UN Charter be a presidency of Security Council, the main task of which is to preserve peace? Mr. Kostin, it takes me right to another question for you. We had in the beginning that, of course, Vladimir Putin is not the only person to have a warrant issued. Um, there's also Maria Lvova-Belova. Um, and I wanted to ask you specifically about what progress has been made to return some of these 16,000 plus children to their families. This is uh, our main goal. And uh, uh, criminal proceedings against those who are involved in uh, forced deportation and abduction of Ukrainian children is also one instrument. From my point of view, the main goal is to return Ukrainian children to their families and to their country. Because, and, and we also need to do it as soon as possible. Because for many of them who are very small and young, in some years, it will be very difficult to, to change uh, their national identification. We all know this from the previous examples in world history. We carefully examine them and we need to combine our efforts in order to return them home. Just today, we have a meeting in uh, the president's office uh, with regard to creation of the coordination center. The main goal of which is to do everything possible together with our international partners to return Ukrainian children home. And it's important for all of us to raise this issue practically every day, not only in media, but also on the level of international organizations, on the level of national governments, on the level of uh, people who are worldwide known, we need to return Ukrainian children home. From the point of view of uh, the legal instruments, we have not only criminal cases, we have also the opportunity to sanction those who are involved in uh, um, depor forcible deportation and abduction and illegal abduction of Ukrainian children in Russia and we, use, we will use this instrument as well. And this could be very widely used, not only against the leaders of uh, Russian authorities, but also against those who are involved on regional level in Russia. And all of them should know that these crimes would be not left unpunished. There would be not impunity for this war crime. And combining efforts on international level, I believe will help to get Ukrainian children back home to their families and to their country. 
Mr. Costin, I want to uh, talk to you specifically from your perspective and one of the stories that's occupying our front pages at the moment, and that is the leaked documents. So you're a senior voice in the UK Ukrainian government. What is your response to these leaked documents? You know, um, from the point of view of the Office of Prosecutor General, of course, these documents are related to uh, the military issues. And, uh, uh, but uh, as Ukrainian who was involved uh, in previous times in the negotiations and communications um, on international level, I would say that we need to be very cautious with every information which is distributed by Russians, even not even indirectly, because they always use any possible way to speculate and to manipulate. And uh, their, their target and their aim is always to break the unity, to raise confusion, between Ukraine and our friends and allies. And we need all to understand this. Whatever happens, whatever information is leaked or you know, intentionally uh, disseminated by Russians, we always need to remember that unity of Ukraine and its friends and allies is the most important for all of us to win in this war. Because this war is not only war of Russia against Ukraine. It's war of total evil and democratic values. It's war, it's war of force against rule of law. And keeping this unity is extremely important. So we need to become, I think we need to have a proper investigation and to understand what happened in order to address these challenges and in order to make, uh, uh, to, uh, I mean, to make our work more practical. So from that, those are very strong words, and from that large, large-scale theoretical approach, Take me down to the ground. What do you think the impact has been on Ukraine's war effort? You mean this leak? Yeah. Um, you know, being in Ukraine and uh, knowing what's, what's going on on a daily basis, I, I don't think that this information will have a great impact on our on our fight from my point of view i'm i used to receive a lot of disinformation and uh, it's not somehow um, i would say it's not somehow uh, making any troubles for us. We know our job. We have the aim. We have 
the our goal to win in both fights in fight for our territorial integrity and sovereignty for our land and in fight for justice and doesn't matter what obstacles russians would uh, would use for us the goal is the same we believe in our unity and believe we believe that despite of all obstacles we will win in both fights has the leak had any impact on your your specific job of seeking accountability in war crimes uh this leak about the I mean counteroffensive now no so you're progressing just as you were before yes of course of course I, I know how, yes, I know how um, our partners in the uh, United States are standing with us. And with regard to all of our accountability joint efforts, this, uh, this information or information, I don't know, this leak means nothing. We will go ahead with our joint efforts to make Russia accountable. So I have a big step back question. That is, you've talked so much about evil against the rule of law and the accountability of the international setup that really came, followed the Second World War. Do you still have faith in that whole system? Or what has your experience in the last year told you about the durability and the efficiency of that system going ahead? You know, when I'm asked uh, such uh, tough questions, I always start my answer with words that I am very optimistic. And this is uh, my experience with regard to the uh, this first year of war. Um, we are very open in our communication with all of our partners and friends, even if this communication is difficult. I know in details how we started our communication with regard to special tribunal with regard to international compensation mechanism and many other endeavors uh, on the uh, on the field of um, accountability of Russian Federation. And I know definitely how we progressed during this year. If six months ago or seven months ago, no one uh, was ready to publicly support the idea of special tribunal for the crime of aggression. Now we have, we are discussing the legal modalities of it. If a year ago, it were just, you know, theoretical discussion about confiscation of assets and compensation mechanism. Now we have first cases of confiscation, thanks to our US partners and friends. And we are on the way of creating of register of damages. That's why I believe in international system of law and justice. The only, uh, the only lesson we all need to take into account is that current system is needs to be adjusted because if we are if we are looking to create a special ad hoc tribunal, it means that that current mechanisms are not enough. If we are looking about special compensation mechanism, even taking into account all previous experience, 
we once again are creating something new. It means that we have a unique opportunity at the moment. And I'm always addressing my partners, my friends, lawyers, academic, academicians, politicians on international level saying that we have an obligation, not only before the victims and survivors of this war of aggression, but especially before the future generations to improve the system of international law and order in order to ensure long-lasting peace on European land as it was done by Nuremberg trials after Second World War. Mr. Kostin, we need to adjust the system of international criminal law and international humanitarian law for the best future of, of coming generations. Mr. Kostin, thank you for leaving us with that very timely reminder of our needs to, to obey the rules of law and understand them internationally. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.